We're going to be in right now uh, the closing up of First uh, Samuel. So pick us up in chapter 30 of First Samuel. Chapter 30 of First Samuel. We'll be anchoring ourselves too in some uh, verses that will be encouraging for us. So if there's pauses and delays, uh, it'll be to take the pictures that we're seeing in our Old Testament teaching and applying them to the principles that have been given to us. It happened when David and his men came to Ziklag, and it says on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag attacked and they burned it with fire so these are the sworn enemies of the Jews and actually it probably is more appropriate to say of God they were that heinous that despicable so much so that God had told Moses that they needed to be eradicated that's how bad they were and of course as the nation moved through, they just never got that mission completed. And even Saul, as we can see previously looking back, had missed the opportunity. As a result, they hung around, they grew strong and bold, and they're back now at a time when probably David would have least expected it and doesn't actually right now um, know what to do about it. But we're going to see how he consults with God. But that being said is that there's a picture with regard to what they represent. But it also is a picture too of what David had put himself into. He put himself into jeopardy by basically compromising with the enemy. We had looked at that on a couple of lessons ago on a Sunday, I believe, and it was basically sleeping with the enemy, hanging out with the enemy, making a deal cutting a contract. So that was with Achish, the king, his name meaning serpent, wily one. A year and a half with him, and the last teaching he was dismissed, David was. It worked out very well for David because the other, Phil the other princes of the Philistines said, we're not taking David with us. We don't know really his heart. Achish said, oh, I know his heart. He's going to be a servant of mine forever. He's done this and he's done that. He didn't have it really correct. But the bottom line is, is that David, in a sovereign act of God, was dismissed. But you remember that in the time that he was seemingly in the employment of Achish, he had a city that was bequeathed to him still under management of Achish, the Philistine. And so... What we're going to see now is how God's going to change circumstances in his life and basically initiate through that, which is loss. We will see a loss, but we're also going to see the return and gain that God's going to give David in this. So this place that has been David's hideout for about a year and a half working with uh, Achish has been burned by the Amalekites. And it says in verse 2 that in addition, 
they had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now, this would have been unusual because the Amalekites were fearless and they were ruthless. And they would have indeed known that David had been their sworn enemy, even to the fact that perhaps reports had been given that many of their tribal groups had been attacked and dealt a death blow by David's men. So evidence suggests that they may have been very aware that David had stationed himself there and possibly very aware that a majority of time was away from Ziklag and therefore seized that opportunity of vulnerability. So one of the things that I also like to look at in this kind of a picture is that we too, when we drift away from the place where God really desires us to be, we're potentially in a vulnerable situation, if not perhaps in where we are at spiritually, because David was very much a spiritual man whom we leave behind. And I say this in terms of, of what very often we see in the church, just the leaving behind of the church, just neglecting the things of the church and neglecting the things that, that are important about why we anchor ourselves in that. You know, there, the world asks a lot of us, and there are times in which the mission that men indeed have are ordained for a season to do that which is distant and uncomfortable. That is a fact. I had military brothers. They were taken at length to do battle. And that is comparable to others that for occupations that they have, they at times must comply, be a part of that. But the important thing is that those men, as I'm referring to even the warriors in my family, that they stay tight with God and that they are not leaving God behind but advancing with God in their calling. So we know that David had a spiritual heart for God and we know that he didn't leave God, but he also didn't have that authority to do what he did. God's trying to pull him from that. And that's why one of the things that you see here is that how could it be that these guys come in, burn the place down, took no lives of the aged, the young, babies, livestock? They didn't do anything like that. And we don't have evidence that they knew about the concept of ransom. So we see in this is that God was protecting David in a very special way, even though he had stepped out of what would have been the perfect will of God. And that would have been to go where? If he had to go anywhere, it would have been from En Gedi to the proper area in Hebron. In other words, to establish himself there, trust God for that time. He came from En Gedi, linked up with Achish to live ultimately in Ziklag, which was Achish's fortress, and then to ultimately um, now find himself wondering what to do. And so they've been carried away. Verse 3, so David and his men, they came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people were with them 
and lifted up their voices and wept until, and notice this, it's very, it's very definitive. It says, they lifted up their voices until they had no more power to weep. So they're heartbroken, they're crushed, and they have great doubts now as to whether they will see their loved ones again. There's a, there's a true fear in the unknown. And it has, in this particular scenario, played on the men so much that now they want to pin this problem on David. And there's a spiritual picture right now that when calamity strikes, do we look to the Lord for what only He can do, and that's to encourage us and comfort, or do we look for someone to pin the blame on? David right now is going to be found from his men's perspective of blame. And this is where we see it. It says David's two wives, Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess, Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive, and David was greatly dismayed, for the people spoke of stoning him. So that was a death sentence. It goes all the way back to Moses. It was prescribed for adjudicating and pronouncing a sentence seemingly that warranted death. This era didn't warrant death. This tells you that these men are looking at the wrong source of their problems. They needed to say, the Amalekites have done this, not David. That can also be very true in our lives. There's always someone to blame, but why does God get the first finger pointed at him? And very often he does. So it says this, and this is a picture that's important for us to see. It says this, As they are greatly distressed, the people speak of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But notice what David does. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In Psalm 42, verse 5, I'm going to pick it up there. And this should be familiar to you. We've sung about it before. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for he for I yet shall praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, it continues in verse 6, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Misar. Deep calls into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? Now, this certainly can be attributed to what David indeed may have been thinking. This is credited to Korah. But familiar, obviously, as Asaph was, to the chief song leader of Israel, which David was, this is what 
was not unusual for David to do, to take his encouragement from the Lord. And that's why very often what happens is in crises, we want to be comforted by other things, other distractions. David chose in what would have been a, an alarming betrayal to have been considered worthy of being stoned to just comfort himself in the Lord. And this would have been very stern because he had men that he did what? He led. He led faithfully. All of their wanderings with David, now up to probably year 10, had been secured. He saw them through everything because the Lord was with David. He was that great of a spiritual leader. So to all of a sudden experience that in this situation they were willing to take his life, wow, that would have hurt the heart. But rather than David taking off, or rather than we see David arguing or venting, he tucks in and he strengthened himself in the Lord. And then now we see the second part of this. He's making inquiry of the Lord. So there's a principle here. When things turn against us and all hope seems to be lost, Psalm 43 verse 5 says very clearly, take hope. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Then the other thing is, seek now the heart and will of God. Where do we find this? It says in this, David said to Abiathar the priest, Elimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now, Abiathar again was a son that experienced the treachery of Saul against his father and 80 priests. He escaped. He needed comfort and found it in the Lord and ultimately by inquiry with David. Now he became a high priest for David's men. And at this time, he says, we need to make inquiry of the Lord. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall overtake, surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Immediately he receives an answer from the Lord. Um, you know, for in a variety of ways, which I think all of us probably have been through this week, um, there's just been distress. I, it's, always, it's always, I think, fair to say something in our life this week caused distress. If, if you were distress-free, praise God. Praise God. But if you did have distress, then I think this has a, a real relatable you know, encouragement to us. But I did. And so I finished attending morning worship. I enjoyed this past week. I did it once and then had two others sit in and enjoy that. And the Lord just gave me a comforting word. Being in his house, what? Seeking comfort not running in my seeking comfort, and then somebody coming in and just speaking the word of the Lord to me, a comforting, encouraging assessment in what was a distressful pondering. And I was immediately lightened up. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I've also been amazingly, which it shouldn't surprise me, but it's always so much fun 
when, as you're reading through the Bible and doing so every day, the Lord has just precision in how he encourages you. You just see this illumination of Scripture. Um, if you, I've said this before. If you want a one-year Bible, we'll get it to you. I've enjoyed it because in it, it just lays out the blanket that you can cozy up with and see the relatability between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the Proverbs and the Psalms. And for me, the Lord has just been really um, washing me and just enlightening me. And this is a practical part of it, that we tuck in with the Lord and we expect in our inquiry of God that he's going to answer us. So I believe that expectation is very important to have in the reality of your prayer life. I know that you hear me, Lord. I know that you're for me. This situation that I'm in is overwhelming me. So I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going back to Ziklag. That's been burned down. There's nothing to be established in what now has been burned down. And by the way, that's a means by which God was also motivating David. That's not your place. Sometimes we look at the ashes in our life and, and we sift through it and, and we think, oh, it's all over. No, that thing is all over. It's not good. I'm not saying that there can't be good things that burn up, but this speaks of the things that God wants burned away from us. And he'll use a fire. He'll use a persecution. He'll use a cleansing flame, a predicament that really says, you're not going back to that. I was with you in it, but I'm pulling you from it. But as I'm pulling you from it, I'm saving those who now you are going to be dispatched to rescue. And by the way, since you asked, you're not going to lose anything. Well, I just lost Ziklag. No, that's, that's not eternal. And even though you're on now the march to go after family, it's temporal. But my saving of you is eternal. I got a plan for you. So even in spiritual life, when there's the calamity and seemingly the ashes that we want to sift through and plant our flag and start building our fences up, God says, it's a change to move you to where what? I've always told you you're going. And now with just less than a year, you're going to be there. Again, in his mind, he wouldn't necessarily be able to associate all of that. We look back on a man's life, but we see the principle being exercised. And we see that because he did this, what is he doing? He's modeling for his men, and very likely they saw him seeking the face of God. How can we stone him? He's praying. He always does that. Won't even turn his back on us. He's just in this kneeling posture and he's weeping with us. He's doing everything that we're doing because he feels exactly the way we feel. He would have felt to some degree that he had caused this. He would have felt exactly like them because he suffered loss like them. And so one of the principles we also see can be identified in a famous passage. I'll put you back there really quick. Hebrews, I can read it. You don't have to necessarily get there, but if you want to, you can. Hebrews 4.14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our confession. David's holding fast to his confession. He's able to say, I know how you feel. I've gone through it. I'm with you in it right now. See my tears. Feel my loss. The questions that I have. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's just a great verse. We have a great high priest. And he is very aware of what it is we're going through. The other principle can be found here as well. And that would be in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the power of the Lord. So David's now consulting with Abiathar, who again would have had sorrow heaped upon him when he lost his father and all of his, his brethren under Saul's rage. But guess what he's doing? He picked himself up. He cried, and he continued on in ministry, serving the Lord under the auspices of David. And he's being effective. He dispatches this ephod to seek the Lord with David. And this was the answer. You're going to overtake them without fail, recover all. Maybe for you that's what is the word of the Lord. You're going to recover it all. Without fail, you're going to overtake the enemy. You think the enemy has overtaken you. You're going to overtake the enemy. You're in battle. I haven't lied to you about that, but the battle belongs to me. You positioned yourself in prayer. You set a model for those who know what you're going through. You know, that's why I, th I, that I, I think at times we don't realize how much we're teaching other people just based on living life unto the Lord. Um, will people catch you praying when others might be displaying an outcome that threatens your faith? Comments that destroy you? Or in fact, maybe loss that has indeed provoked you to question, what do I do now? So he gets that sure answer, but the other principle is, what do you do with a sure answer from God? you got to march on it. I thought we had to be still and be quiet before the Lord. Well, that's the devotional part of it. But God takes that part of it, which is being still and knowing that he is God, being encouraged in the Lord, to be able then to have what we see here, the seeking of the Lord's will, waiting for his answer. So we have our eyes in our Bibles. We have our ears tuned in to the prophetic voice, the mysterious visitor, the phone call, the text, the email, the way that he whispers in our ear, the way that our heart is filled to capacity when it has been vacated in the urgency. And this is what we're seeing, the principle now. What are you going to do when God has done two things right now? He comforted you as you sought him, and now he gives you the directive of assurance.
I appreciate the people that come in to my life and they speak the language of God to encourage me on the journey. Where are you going to journey to? I'm not talking about Israel. However, I've been encouraged on that one. I'm just talking about the day-to-day stuff to be encouraged and what it is I do, you do, we're all doing. And so this is the sure answer of God, and this is where faith has to put on its tennis shoes, its sandals, its boots. And it has to make a decision to obey. Well, I thought God would do it. He does do it with us. Because without faith being tested, then you're not going to be able to develop character that also is the attribute of faithfulness. Character and faithfulness, they go hand and foot. Your hand in God's hands and your feet walking the path. David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where, they, where those who stayed uh, were left behind. Now, in this situation, too, we see that the 600 men are all of a sudden coming with him. Why? Because they saw him in prayer. They saw him consult God through the priest. And they now know. When has David ever been wrong when we know that he's directly heard from God? They couldn't say that Ziklag, they saw David in prayer and hearing from God. But on this one, they could. He was weeping with us. He was praying in spite of us. And he summoned the priest for the word. It also indicates here, too, that I think is very special, is that it's not Abiathar who's the voice of God. God literally is speaking to Abi, uh, to David. Isn't that cool? That's why you can always say that as you seek the Lord with all your heart, he will show himself with his heart for you. And I like that a lot. So the 600 men, this is his army. But remember, they all have families. So it's a big troop. He's only got his military men with him right now. They're following him. Good for them. Were those who stayed who were left behind, but David pursued he and 400 men. What's happened? There's some who are exhausted right now. They just can't take another step. But this is another interesting thing. They started out with David, but they could not finish the course with David. But they're doing something that is also principle. And that is they're minding the supplies that now are too heavy for David to do anything with. When David moved out with his 600 men, they would have taken the stuff that for now would have been a burden to them. So these guys basically are going to pitch a tent, a spiritual tent, and they're going to stay in place. And the picture here is staying in place and in the place of prayer, resting in the advancement of David's men, the men that they were with but cannot follow with, they would slow them down and ultimately be ineffective in battle. And it reminds us that in a church, there are those that must remain behind. We're not all going to go to India, to Africa, to Mexico, to China, to Russia, some of the islands that we can't even pronounce, some of the places, but we can pray. Some of you may get to Israel. Some of you may not. But you know what? It doesn't mean you can't link yourself to any of those places by 
holding on to the supplies, the supply chain of prayer. That's why whatever you're doing for God, you need to know he takes notice of it. But I always stay behind. What if there was nobody that stayed behind in areas where God has made us an establishment? See, God does establish himself at places. That's essentially how he takes territory. So if everybody's on the go, there's no territory that's established. It was temporal. The Old Testament with Abraham to ultimately Moses and to Joshua to the time now of David, he's establishing himself. What does he want to do? He wants to establish himself with David in a city that he will call my city. And he's done that. And the church he has done that with. He wants to establish this work. The supply line is awesome. And we've seen that. I think that, and it's, it's just surprising, you know, the mechanics on a Sunday in particular. But I think that, that I heard a count of like 153 people. Is that something like that? 150? Something, yeah. It was, it was just really obvious a full place. <laughs> Might not be this Sunday. <laughs> but I'm hoping that the supply line remains steadfast. You'll enjoy your football game much better to know that you linked yourself with God. And then you'll know what team to pray for, how to make your bets. <laughs> so David allows them to stay. It's compassionate. God allows there to be a staying out of compassion and out of need. It's both. They stay. He takes the others and it says that in this time right now, there's going to be an Egyptian that they find in the field. And they brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. The implication may be here, too, um, in the not-yet-crossing of the brook, is that those who actually were established putting their parcels and packages and the weight and the burden down are the ones that may have found this Egyptian, as opposed to the warriors. And it's maybe because of them that there was a compassion that didn't provoke them as warriors might have been to slay him. And so in the field brought him to David and they gave him bread. He ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. He essentially was an, an imposed fast. That's a long time to go. The body can do it. That's a fact. But see, he's totally vulnerable. And even he in his condition is going to experience mercy and grace. And that is one of the pictures that God always wants to present. Even when there's a stark contrast of a judgment on Christ rejecting or God rejecting people, evil and wicked, unrighteous, and unwilling to seek the God of Abraham. God knows how to render compassion and grace. So he's, in essence, allowing us to see a picture of what these men who, from the supply line having been brought to David with him, are showing. We've seen people on our beach studies on Thursdays when we're out all summer long hear the word, 
get washed. We've had some become participants in this ministry here just because they've been without water and food for three days. And all of a sudden, they pass by, they hear music, they see a place to sit, they experience a friendliness, and they're getting a banqueting table set before them without cost. It's touching. It forges an alliance. And here we see this happening. David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. That's a trigger word. An Amalekite? One of those who right now is responsible for taking our families? Notice the answer. Because three days ago, he says, I fell sick. That's why I'm behind. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites to the territory of which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. You were there. You were one of the guys that either saw or participated in the burning of that which was my city. See, all of these things right now, for his confession, would have been what? Notable as you've just judged yourself. You're a dead man. And so this is actually one of the beautiful pictures, too, of what God coaxes out of us when we come to the end of our means, when we're nothing without God's help, nothing without water and living bread. Nothing without a compassionate ear. And yet, we're told that all who put their trust in the Lord will not be disappointed. And in essence, we see David as a picture of that. Every reason would stand against this guy by confessing what it is he's confessed and basically saying, I guess I'm a dead man now. And yet, there's going to be compassion that will be ministered to him. David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. David's behaving as a diplomat, not a warrior. And this is important to see because God's far more diplomatic than people give him credit for. He is a judge. He is the sovereign God. What he says he will do and his judgments are righteous always. But David right now seeing in this particular man's life an opportunity in which what he has done for him could be reciprocated, and now what? Seeing God's in this. Okay, wait a minute. I sought God. I was in prayer. I was weeping. Okay, then I sought God with the priest, got my answer from the Lord, have put footsteps to my faith, but he didn't get anything but the assurance that he wouldn't lose anything and it wasn't going to fail. But he didn't have, okay, like a garment, turn here, turn there, stop, advance. What we see is he's acknowledging that through one individual that was left behind, he found his garment. And that very often is the way God allows us to develop in faith is that we don't know anything except God says he's going to see me through. 
the fine print hasn't been given, but he says, you put your footprint down and the fine print will be revealed. Put your footprint down, the fine print will be revealed. And it's through this guy. And all he's saying, you have every reason to kill me. But if you promise not to kill me, nor turn me over to the person who is my master, I'm your garment. I'll get you there. And David sees the reality of God's sovereign will. Very encouraging, of course. You can take me down to this troop. You can do it. I will take you down to this troop. Verse 16, and when he had brought him down, there they were spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken. This is so classic of what the enemy does. Throws a party when he thinks he's got you, not realizing that God's got you more than the situation and the circumstance and the loss. It is why it's important that in the time of crisis, the very best of our expectation is seen in spite of our sorrow, in spite of even not even having an answer. Or the other is that, do you realize what you're doing? If you do this, you ultimately will meet your demise. You have no certainty. The enemy's bigger than you, and the enemy wants you to believe that. He only has God's word. And by the way, it's a positive word. It's not a positive confession. It's a positive word from God. There's a difference. There's a difference in expressing a positive confession of hope. But the positive word of God is your hope, and it can be what you link yourself to and never change from. Very encouraging. So these guys are throwing a party. I don't know what they were thinking about David. Maybe they thought, we know that the Philistines are in battle array right now. And we know that David has sold himself to them. We've heard that in the reports from Achish that he owns David's soul. He's not going to be a problem. We've got everything we need. No problem at all. And that's what the enemy, again, cannot be credited for. He is not all-knowing. Not omniscient not omnipresent, not omnipotent. He has none of the chief attributes of God to outsmart any one of us from the plan of God. The only thing that can be the effective deterrent in our lives of God's plan being realized is when we say, maybe I was wrong on what I believed about God. Maybe I was a little hasty in my footsteps. Need to put on some Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville. So David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. That's an important part to remember. They escaped. He's taking care of business that Saul should have done. We don't know how many of the Amalekites representing here would have been, if you would, um, the majority of the Amalekite nation. It could have been all of their superheroes in which David is going to just dice them down to nothing. But the escape is important because it says this. They're always going to be able to return 
and you must be ready for the return of the Amalekites. 400 was, again, nothing to sneeze at. David's attacking with 600. So that tells you actually how many he would have been up against. Okay, was he up against 600 to 600? Probably thousands to 600. 400 escape. But the principle here is explained in Exodus 17.6. We'll cruise back there. Seventeen six, And it's the Lord speaking to Moses. I think I'm going to be right on this. This is a battle with um, the Amalekites under Joshua's leadership. Choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. As you recall, he does. He gets weary. He needs help to hold his arms up. In verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called its name, The Lord is my banner. And verse 16, For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, notice this verse, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amalek, again, is a nation which God abhors. And he says in this, which is interesting, though there was what you would call defeat, seemingly utter defeat, God says in 16 that there's going to be war with Amalek from generation to generation. We do our best when confronted with the enemy, but we never take our rest from the enemy. We have to be ready. Why is this happening again? Because Amalek will be moving from generation to generation. Okay, we made it through our battles. Guess who has to take the next, if you would, attitude of warfare? Those who have followed behind us. We have to warn our generations, younger generations. We have to encourage our older generations. You took it on before, keep going. You guys haven't been there yet. Be mindful. Generation to generation. And that's what we see here. And so as uh, David moves into this rescue, attacking them, 400 escape, that was the point that I was making. David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. So from twilight until evening of the next day, not a man of them escaped except for the 400. We don't know what happened to them except from generation to generation. There's going to be war. God's still going to champion his cause. But David recovers all of them. And David took all the flocks and herds. They had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. And this is the fruit 
of his obedience. He wipes out the enemy, 400 escape, generation to generation, they're going to be charged with staying ready for warfare. But in this, on the spoils, you also see another act of what happens when God gives victory, and that is increase. When God gets the glory and the victory has been um, secured, there's increase in your life. Of what? Greater understanding of God? Greater trust in God? In the difficulties that one time you thought you would never be able to get through, he saw you through it. What does it do? It builds your faith up. It builds your faith up to the degree that when this event happens again, you're that much wiser, that much stronger, that much bolder. But it also teaches the next generation when they see you with that confidence. So that's a superhero. I thought it was Captain America. It wasn't. It was that guy, it was that gal that's always going to church. They've always got their Bible. I always see them in prayer. They're the superheroes. God allows that to be motivational and challenging. It challenges the soul of people who don't understand how with confidence we can do things that seemingly are impossible and so risky. God does that. But David right now says this is David's spoil. And this is where you get to see something very sweet. David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. These were the guys that were so weary they couldn't do it. What's happening right now? They're being encouraged in the return of David. And guess what? They were replenished. What we saw David give to the Amalekite, these guys also were blessed to eat. What they gave to the enemy, God allowed them to enjoy. That's why we are told that when there are those who are contrary to our faith, and even to our liking, when we are kind, caring, and giving to them, it is as, it is as if we are putting coals, heaping coals upon their head, which again is an Old Testament picture of granting to somebody the kindling, the coal that starts their fire, allows them to do their cooking. And so, they're greeting David in what? Strength. And notice what happens here. All the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. So isn't that interesting? Because these are David's men. <laughs> the scriptures are saying, these guys are wicked, worthless. So sometimes... In our spiritual lives, we have men and women that travel with us, but their attitudes haven't yet been adjusted. How do you adjust attitudes of people that travel and, and do spiritual things with us? You love them, and you're firm with them, gracefully, truthfully, patiently. You learn to pray for them, that what? Their hearts can be changed, and perhaps a little bit of a, an askewed opinion about others. You'll take slaps, 
you'll stand in the way of javelins and arrows intended for them, but you've chosen to take them. It's a beautiful picture here. David makes a law of this, and this is what he says. My brethren, you should not do so with what the Lord has given to us. He brings it all the way back to the Lord. This is what the Lord has given to us. Who has preserved us? He's given it to us. He has preserved us. And he's delivered into our hands the troop that came against us. He's done this all. And essentially, you would be so arrogant to presume that these who stayed behind would be deserving of anything less than God's best? For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is, classic line, who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. That's where you get this phrase, share and share alike. Kids have to be taught how to do that, right? Sometimes adults do too. <laughs> I love that lay package, that motto they used to have, get your own bag. Do you remember that? Lay's potato chips, you can't just eat one. And then they came up with a motto later on. It was, get your own bag. <laughs> the implication is, I ain't sharing. I'm not sharing. It's good to the last bite. <laughs> it's all mine. And you know why I liked it because it said everything that I wanted somebody to read when my face was in that bag. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoils to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And then he cites all of this. I'm going to jump down to 31. Those who were in Hebron and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. David basically said, that's David's stuff. But David was essentially saying, I'm going to reserve that for all those in my time of roving have been an asset for me, a refreshment. And that's why when we have opportunity to refresh others, and you've had that happen and you've been refreshing to others, Oh, he just wants it for himself. Does he? Does she? Actually, probably you're meeting somebody who wants it for others, wants it for God. So beautiful lesson here. Wonderful lesson. In closing, ziklag means winding road. Reminds me of a Beatles song. The long and winding road that leads. Where does it lead? <laughs> It'll always lead. <laughs> if you're in prayer and you're reading the word, it will always lead to the straight and narrow. The road that God wants us to be on. The Amalekites, their name means he who dwells in the valley. But one of the Psalms tells us that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, these people lived in death. Their motivation was death. God wants us to move through the shadow of the valley, the valley of the shadow. That's what God desires for us, a movement through it, not hanging out in it. So 
great picture here for us.